Good morning, everyone. If you have your Bibles with us, let's turn to Acts chapter 7. We're going to get there in a moment. But I'm particularly excited for us to go through because we are landing the series today. And from next week, we start topical preaching throughout the summer. But uh, we have been on a journey, and I counted for about 12 weeks going through Acts chapters 1 through 7. If you remember last year, we went through Acts basically 8 until somewhere, and uh, that was, uh, it was incredible, but we, we missed the birth of the church and, and what God did as it started this journey as we um, are the continuation of the church. And if you remember, it was a beautiful way that God started the church with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the believers. And since then, we've seen what it means to be a Spirit-empowered church Saj preached on a spirit-empowered people. We've seen the sovereignty of God amidst the opposition that comes the way in the way of the church. And we've seen God do the most miraculous things in the lives of believers. And today we get to land in Acts chapter 7. And the title of my preach today, I love it. It is, your best life is not about you. Write that down. Your best life is not about you. I don't know about you. But I love courtroom drama movies, A Few Good Men and things like that. I love those types of movies because I find them incredibly gripping as prosecutors and defendants plead their cases trying to sway the verdict of the jury or the judge. Of the judge. And something that's crazy about these movies, and I love how unexpected it goes, sometimes all the cards will be stacked against the innocent person who's been wrongly accused. And just when we think nothing can be done to liberate them and prove their innocence, the liberating evidence rolls through the door and the legal aid proves their innocence and they're set free. Amazing. But that's not what happens in Acts chapter 7. As we open Acts 7, we find Stephen is standing trial for false accusations that have been laid against him. We're going to focus on chapter 7, verses 54 to 56. But before we do that, there's a lot of context that I'm quickly going to give us so that we can understand what's happening in the scene as we unpack these verses. Earlier on, as chapter 6 closes, Stephen is introduced as a man full of grace and power and doing signs and wonders amongst the people and the early church. It even says that he was, or it doesn't say this, but he was not an ordinary dude. He was, he was quite a serious guy. He was serious amongst the apostles and the disciples, enough for Scripture to mention him. So he's not a normal dude. But as he's doing these things of moving in signs and wonders and, and operating within the Spirit, we see a dispute arises from some of the, the religious leaders, and they make false accusations against him. But the thing is, they could never withstand or kind of go against Stephen, because the Bible says he was so wise and speaking with the Spirit that no one could stand against him. And so the religious leaders then, because they can't defeat him, and in hopes of crushing him down, they make false accusations against him and say that he said Jesus has come to demolish their temple and break down the customs that Moses delivered to them. When Stephen is given a moment to respond to these accusations made against him, instead of pleading his own personal innocence in the matter, he rather chooses to preach an Old Testament summary starting from Abraham to Joseph to Moses. And then he ends and delivers this dynamite sermon by saying, actually, 
I'm turning your accusations back at you. You are the ones who are persecuting the prophets just as your forefathers did persecute the prophets. And so he, he basically takes their accusations and he turns them back at these guys. And that's basically the summary. So we've got a powerful preacher moving in signs and wonders. And when he responds of the accusations made against him, he preaches a dynamite sermon. And now we're going to see what is the response of these religious leaders after Stephen has just preached this. So we're going to open up to chapter 7, verses 54 and 56. It's on the screen if you want to read with me. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you know all things. I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is not just a story we read, but the very truth by which we live our lives. And I pray today that we would see Jesus in the Scriptures, that, that the, the, it would be more than words on a page. It would leap off into our hearts and change the way we live our lives. I pray that you would, you would do a work in us today, Lord God. I pray our, our hearts would be soft and our ears would be open, ready to receive what it is that you want to say to us. We open our hearts to you now, Lord. Amen. Amen. So when we look at verse 54 again, we see that their response to Stephen is one filled with rage and anger. It says, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. The Amplified Version says that they, they were cut to the heart, meaning they were so offended that their hearts became filled with anger and rage towards Stephen. It describes just intensity in this moment of the hatred they have now towards Stephen for what he's just said. Luke paints this picture of the Sanhedrin and religious leaders so that we can actually see that these guys are in a fit of uncontrolled anger. And we're given these two strong descriptions used by Luke to help us understand that these guys weren't just angry. They were furious. Even the term of grinding their teeth at him is a term used as a strong expression of hate. One of the studies that I, that I went through describes their hearts being filled with acid. I mean, you can tell how hectic this moment is. But why respond this way? Why respond with such hatred and rage in their hearts towards Stephen? Well, when we look at the whole sermon and we understand where the Pharisees and religious leaders were, we see that there is a story the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin believed to be true that dictated their life. But Stephen has just made clear to them that their story is fundamentally wrong because they're missing someone of utmost importance, Jesus. The story by which the Sanhedrin or the religious leaders, those making the accusations, live by was basically the God of the Old Testament, but that the Messiah hadn't come. And so there was no space for Jesus in their story. But that by which Stephen and the early church and those who had come to know Jesus, the story they live by is the story with Jesus at the center. The Messiah has come. 
So we see the two different stories that are dictating their lives. So this is my first question to you today, point one. What story is dictating your life? And is Jesus at the center of that story? How do you respond when your life needs adjustment and you've seen that Jesus is not at the center? There are some things in life that are so easy to adjust to, but it's still doable, right? When I first found out about the keto diet and banting and all that sort of stuff, it was very hard for me to change. Not because I loved carbs, but the story that I had been told and believed my whole life was that carbs were healthy. And you need to feed your body with as much carbs as possible to fuel your life for, for, for exercise and everything that's going on. Mike is going, amen. You're not going to say that in a moment. And, uh, so I be- and this was the story by which I lived, the truth that I thought until I got to Dubai. And the non-bread and butter chicken hit me differently in this country. And the carbs didn't shake themselves. This is a true story. You can ask the office staff. It was shock and horror. And the carbs wouldn't shake themselves off as easily as before. And I remember the one day I got into the car, I was going somewhere, and I pulled the seatbelt over, and as I clicked it in, I felt as it pushed against me, the fat rolls from my stomach climbed over the seatbelt, and I thought to myself, what have I done? The truth that I was living by is gone. God, why do you allow bad things to happen to good people? I couldn't understand. But genuinely, I was ashamed and angry because the truth in the story that I thought was real was wrong. And the same with the Pharisees. They believed the story by which they lived their life and dictated what they do and how they go and why they live did not have Jesus at the center. They were missing the fundamental part of the story. Is Jesus the center of the story by which you live your life? Very plainly, we are not the center of the story. Any story that does not have Jesus at the center is not the right story by which we live our lives. For us Christians living in the 21st century today, we, we all wrongly believe and we have this in common that we think we are the center of the story. Sometimes our worship, we sing about that. We, th- we, we sing about me-centric songs. Not today though. Good job guys. But we do. We think that we are the center of the story. And maybe we even believe that Jesus is a generous portion of that story, but he's not the center. And we have to come to realize that we are not the center of the story. But a great question to ask is, how do I know if Jesus is not the center of my life? How do I tell? How do I assess? I want to explain to you what a Christ-centered life looks like And I want to ask the Holy Spirit actually to work in your hearts as I read this out to you. Those who live Christ-centered lives have developed a tangible awareness of the presence of Jesus in their life. So their decisions then are based upon one question. Would this please the Lord? If what I'm about to do, would this glorify Jesus? And to avoid Satan's tactics They evaluate their choices by asking, if Jesus was spending the day with me, would I watch this? Would I say that about them? Would I do this? Would I think these things? Every lifestyle decision 
for a Christ-centered believer is weighed on heavenly scales and evaluated for its eternal significance. Because if it's pulling me away from the passion of life that truly matters, which is pleasing Jesus, then it's not a part of my life. Followers of Christ who center their lives on Him actually start to become more like Him. Those who, who live Christ-centered lives choose to obey Jesus out of love and honor, not out of a fear of being caught in sin. Does your life with Jesus just operate out of way of not wanting to be caught in doing the wrong thing? The greatest desire of a Christ-centered believer is to please Him and grow closer to Him. And the chief aim of a Christ-centered believer is just to glorify Jesus. If what I'm about to do, does this glorify Jesus? No? Well, I'm not doing it. Or maybe I should do it differently so that it does glorify Jesus. But there's a thin line when we become a religion-centered believer rather than a Christ-centered believer. Because religion-centered believers strive for supremacy, glory, and honor, and attention based on one's own individual performance. You see, it keeps score, this religion lifestyle, based on a self-assessment and judges itself and others. Whereas a Christ-centered life rests in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. The fact that their penalty has been paid, I don't need to strive to earn, I rest in the finished work of Him. And because of that, I now grow in holiness so that I can be closer to Him. I've heard a few times people say that, man, to put Jesus at the center of my life means I've got to give up fun, I've got to give up joy, and I've got to endure a miserable life. For the, I've got to sit in the back of this church when the lights go out, I don't know what's going on. And they think that life sucks. There's one problem with that, is that it's simply not true. And if you disagree with me, allow me to go on and you'll see that you are wrong and that the Bible is right. John Piper, in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, it's a fascinating book. He affirms that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And I've taken this part out of his book. If we can put it on the screen, it says that God's ultimate goal in this world, His glory and our deepest desire to be happy are one and the same thing. So God's glory and our happiness are not separated. They're actually the same thing. And you'll see why. Because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Not only is God the supreme source of satisfaction for the human soul, but God Himself is glorified in our being satisfied in Him. You want to glorify God? Satisfy yourself in Him. You look, you, you, your joy is gone. You're miserable. You feel like you're not happy in life. Are you finding your satisfaction in God? Our pursuit of satisfaction in Him is essential to our joy. So if you're on a journey, and if you're not a believer and you're sitting here today, if you're on a journey of trying to find meaning and joy, the only joy that will ever satisfy your soul is Jesus. Because when you get satisfied in Him, His life is glorified because your life becomes an overflowing of the glory of God. You cannot be satisfied any other way. To have Jesus at the center of one's life is to live in the greatest joy you can ever experience. I know that there's moments in my marriage where I've thought, man, this is amazing. 
This is incredible. But it never compares to satisfying myself in Jesus. In Philippians 1, 20 to 21, Paul says, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that now, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored. He's magnified. He's caused to be seen as great. And so to be honored, Christ will be seen as great in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that always sounds an amazing scripture when we read it out. But what does it mean? What is Paul saying? What is he saying when he means to live is Christ? Paul is showing us here that his greatest passion in life is that when people look at him, they would see Christ as supremely great, not Paul. This is why God created us and saved us to magnify Christ so he would be seen as supremely great. To magnify him doesn't mean to make him great. He is great. He doesn't need us making him great. He doesn't need our lives to reflect his glory. God doesn't need us, but we need to reflect his glory that we are fully satisfied in him. And so Paul is saying in Philippians 3 verse 8, I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. I count it all as loss. Everything I bring to the table, all my achievements, everything that satisfies me, it's all loss compared to knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. So Christ is more valuable, he's more precious, and he's worth more than anything, and he's more satisfying than anything that life on this earth can give. So that's what Paul means when he says to live is Christ, that Christ is most magnified in Paul's life when Paul in his life is most satisfied in Christ. Simply put, when you are at the center of your story, you will be gravely disappointed because you cannot satisfy your own soul. For a lot of us, what brought us to this city are jobs that pay well, a career path to set us on track to our dreams, or maybe a better life than the one we had in our home countries. And I certainly don't believe that these are bad things. I believe they are good things. But when they are at the center of the story that dictates our life, we will be gravely disappointed because we're putting something else in that place that can never actually fit there. Jim Carrey said, I wish everybody could get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can realize it's not the answer. And that's a man who doesn't even know the Lord yet, hopefully. Our lives, when Christ is not the center of the story dictating where we are going and why we are living, we're much like the Pharisees who are accusing Stephen. We're missing the fundamental part of the story as we move on to verse 55, this is my next question. What fills you? So our first question is, what story is dictating your life? The next question is, what fills you? Verse 55, Stephen's response now to their enragement and anger says, but he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And we immediately see, when we look at these two, the, the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders and now Stephen, there's such a striking 
contrast between these two. And there couldn't be a more striking contrast of flesh, uh, of flesh-filled lives and a spirit-filled life. Living in the flesh are those who do not know God. They don't have a relationship with Jesus, and the things of the kingdom don't make sense to them. They cannot submit to God or please Him. But those who live spirit-filled lives are those who've been born again by God's Spirit. They've come spiritually alive. They seek to please God, submit to Him, and live in right relationship with Him because of Jesus' death on the cross and life from the grave. So my question to you is when we look at those two, what fills you? When we turn our attention to Stephen, we see he was but being full of the Holy Spirit. He was a man who lived a Spirit-controlled life. Being full of the Spirit, Stephen was able to stand firm against the Sanhedrin, who were rather filled with rage and anger. And you see, Stephen reminds us in this passage that it's not about how much of the Spirit do I have in my life, but how much of me does the Spirit have? It's not about how much of the Spirit do I have in my life, but how much of the Spirit, how much of me does the Spirit have? Stephen was fully submitted and surrendered to the Spirit of Jesus Christ. How much of you does the Spirit have? Have you handed over your life, your being, who you are, how you parent your children, the decisions you make, what you do at your job, the way you think about your, your wife or your girlfriend or your boyfriend, the way you think about your family, have you handed over your entire being to the Spirit? When those who influence you or inspire you to be more like Jesus, basically people you really respect in the faith, when they look at your life and give you an honest assessment, would they say you've handed your life over fully to the Spirit? As you know, Robert and I just came back from Portugal with some of the guys, but after the conference, we decided to take a little bit of holiday. Hey, we're in Portugal, one of the best beaches in the world. And so we decided to take a bit of a holiday. And we drive down to the coast at the bottom, and we arrive at this little town called Burgao. I don't know how to say it. Burgao. I don't know. Portuguese. And uh, we're down there, and it's beautiful, man. It's so beautiful. And so Robert and I decided one day, the sunset's going down. Let's go get some drinks, sit on the beach, and watch the sunset, sunset together, you know. I can finally rest and be with my wife and watch the sunset. So we're standing in the queue, and as we're standing in this queue, this gentleman to the left of me strikes eye contact. And you know when someone strikes eye contact, it's awkward if you don't say something. So I'm like, hey, man, why don't you go in front of me? And he goes, no, you go. And, you, and it becomes this Hugo dance. Eventually, I just said, you just go in front of me. And he said, where's your, where's your accent from and all that sort of stuff? And we started a conversation. And uh, he basically said to me, where are you guys from and so we said well we're from south africa but we're living in dubai and he goes oh what are you doing in dubai people think this place is a desert that doesn't contain anything and so i say to him well that's an interesting question i love it when people ask me what do i do and so i said well my wife was a teacher and i always slowly bring it around and then i said but we're actually working for a church full-time there i'm a young pastor my wife on team there and he said no way and I thought he was going to be like, I'm a Christian. Or he says, I'm not a Christian, but my friend is a Christian, and he's sitting at the table. Come and have drinks with us. And so I look at Robin, and in this moment of hesitancy, we both feel the, the leading of the Holy Spirit. And so we both just nod. We say, yeah, sure, we'd love to. So we go sit down, and I'm interested now in the story. This guy's so clearly not a Christian, but he loves that we're a Christian because his friend's a Christian now. He wants us to sit at this table. So we're sitting there, and as we're sitting there, 
he, he says, my friend's a deacon in the church. And so we just, I'm like, okay, what does this mean? What's going on here? And I lean over to the friend and I just say, you know, we, I mean, we don't mean to impose, but you're in friendly advice. He said, no, don't worry. He said, actually, I know you guys are pastors, oh, you're a pastor and all this sort of stuff. And he basically asked questions about our lives. And I could see that as we were speaking, they were super interested in, in our life. I mean, we're just two average Joes from Dubai. It was so interesting. And the other friend who's not a Christian looks at us and he says, why do you do what you do? Robert and I began to answer. And it was a moment where afterwards we thought, I can't believe we said that because that didn't sound like us. But I remember sitting there and this man looking at us and he was gripped. Like he was, he was hooked off the words that were coming from us. The way we were speaking about church and, and Jesus. And I, I could tell her he had never heard it like this before. And then at the end he goes, look, this is brave, but can you guys come to dinner with us tomorrow night? And so we said, okay, cool, we'd love to. And so the next evening we arrive prepped and ready to be unapologetic about the gospel. We think maybe we have one moment with these guys. Cool, it's going to happen. But something that happened the day before at that dinner, the Christian friend had explained to me, he said, look, my friend hates Christians. So interesting that he invited you to the table. He was really hurt in a way that ruined his family by Christians and the church. And so we were aware of that. So we're sitting at the dinner table the next evening and we're prepped to tell our story and my testimony and how God saved us from sex, drugs, and rock and roll and all that sort of stuff. Me, not my wife. She's a saint. And, uh, and so he says, so tell me your story. And I was like, okay, I can see Jesus has prepped his heart. So I tell him my story. Robin shares what God's doing in Dubai. And you could just tell that there was this, um, not a, a sweetness at the table, like a real divine moment. Like we felt like God's presence was sitting with us at this table. And so that happens. He's blown away by the story. And you, you can see there's something happening in his heart. Anyway, we say our goodbyes. Robin tells me we're busy walking home. And she says, so the, the one Christian friend leaned over to me and said, we're so thankful we met you. We came on this holiday to talk to our friends about their faith. They don't know Jesus. And it's been nine days. We fly out tomorrow and we feel like we've disappointed God. So we prayed and we said, God, will you make a way for us to have this conversation? And she says, and then you guys walked up to us and our non-Christian friend invited you to sit at the table with us. And he invited you to dinner the next night. And I don't tell you that story to float our boat. Right moment, right time, God doing something super ordinary in these people's lives. But the reason I tell you the story is actually because that initial moment, there was a hesitancy in my heart when we were standing in the queue to not go. I just wanted to sit on the beach and be with my wife. And we almost missed it. You see, being full of the Holy Spirit means that there's no place for selfishness in our lives. It's not about you. You cannot expect to live a spirit-filled life when there's selfishness at play. If, us, if that circle represents our life and we want to be spirit-filled people, there's no space for selfishness. There's no space for it. And the moment that selfishness begins to creep its way into our life, the Holy Spirit gets a whiff of that and goes, no, nah, it's not happening. It's not up in here. And then this little picture plays. Come on, Fred, cue me. There we go. Not up in here. And the Spirit shows us there's no room for selfishness here. That if you want to be led by me and be filled with me, there actually is no space for your selfishness because it's not about you. Selfishness yells, me, 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 it's all about me. But the Holy Spirit whispers, 
Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Don't forget, it's all about Jesus. If the Holy Spirit gets a whiff of our selfishness, makes it very clear to us in that moment, and we feel like I did on the beach that day, we almost missed it. What moments are you missing in your life? Because selfishness is creeping in instead of being led by the Holy Spirit. J.R. Packer, in his study of the Holy Spirit, he writes a book called Keeping in Step with the Spirit. I love this book. And in it he says, the Holy Spirit is more likely to come in power when the truth about Jesus is being lifted up and made plain. So basically, is the truth of Jesus being lifted up and made plain in your life? And if we take what he's saying in that book, could it be said, that we are not seeing the fullness of the Holy Spirit move in power in our lives because we're not making Jesus, we're not lifting up Jesus in our lives, that he's not the center of the story that we're living in. Could it be that we're desiring the Spirit to work in our life and the Spirit saying, like I can, I can see that he's not the center. And so I want to make him the center first. That's where we fit into the story when he is at the center. When people hear you speak, do the words of Jesus lay on their hearts? When people look at your life, do they see echoes of someone far greater than you? Much greater. That words can actually not compare. Now it can be a thin line of becoming religious here and think, okay, cool, I've just got to do everything like this and be religious and all these other things are bad. That's not what I'm saying at all and that's not what the text is preaching. It's good to have kids, jobs, careers, holidays, and hobbies. It's great to have those things. But when those things become the utmost priority, instead of being filled with the Spirit, they become bad things because they become the thing that dictates our life. Do you allow the Holy Spirit to lead you as you parent your children? Do you allow the Holy Spirit to share the gospel through you to your neighbors and those you find in the supermarkets? Do you allow the Holy Spirit to guide you as you're deciding what's best for your career? You see, selfishness says, oh, what's the best pay grade? The Holy Spirit says, where's the best for you to be for the kingdom? I have a friend in the church who, he had gotten an offer, double his salary, a new job. And as he was processing, he said, but the Spirit's telling me to stay because it's best for the kingdom. Do you allow the Holy Spirit to lead you to guide you and to remind you that it's not about you. What parts of you does the Spirit not yet have? And what do you need to hand over to Him this morning? As we conclude, my last question, number three, are we dying to live? Verse 56, it says, Stephen responds after he's now seen Christ seated uh, standing at the right hand of God. He says, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And so right after this moment, Stephen sees Jesus. He says it, and then he gets chased out of the city, stoned, and dies. <laughs> if this were presented to Netflix, it wouldn't air because it's not the type of story that the world wants to see. They want to see the person set free. They want to see the person liberated and saved. But the falsely accused in Stephen's story, actually in a worldly sense, isn't liberated. And they think the enemy has won. Or has he? 
when Stephen sees the heavens open and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, when you continue to read the text, you see it brings him peace and confidence in his hour of death because he remembers what Jesus said when Jesus was on earth in Matthew 26. Jesus was also on trial, and the Sanhedrin looks at him and says, The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus looks back and says to him, You have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So when Stephen sees Jesus standing in heaven at the right hand of the Father, his heart is filled with confidence and peace that Jesus is truly alive, that the sting of death has been removed, that our Savior is waiting in eternity to welcome me into his eternal arms. Stephen knows for sure, without a doubt, that the sting of death has been removed as he looks and he sees his Savior standing in heaven having overcome death in the grave, waiting to receive him. You see, the council's verdict doesn't matter in that moment to him. What's happening in the physical doesn't matter because the true judge has already declared him free and innocent through Jesus. This is the confidence that we have, my friends, that death is not the end, that Jesus has overcome death and he is exalted above all else. The Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? I feel like getting Johnny up here and we just sing that. So we can remind ourselves that this life is not about us. It's about living for the one who's at the center of the story. And he's seated at the right hand of God. And nothing could ever come against him. And our victory has been sealed by the name of Jesus. The exalted Christ is indeed standing at the right hand of the Father. And we are no longer bound by the chains of death, but we are liberated because the true judge has won the victory already. Now in all of this, if I can ask the band to please come up, in all of this, your mind has probably got to the place where you've asked yourself, well, when I look at Stephen's life and his ending, am I ready to, to die for my faith? And I think, not, not for everyone in the world, but certainly for us living in Dubai, I think it's a very difficult question for us to even ponder. Maybe we can answer that theoretically, are we ready to die for our faith? But we don't live in a place where we are, we've got to be ready to be martyred for the faith that we live in. We're not persecuted for our faith on a daily basis. But I do think that that question, are we ready to die for our faith, leads us to another question and asks, are you not ready to just die for your faith? Are you ready to live for your faith? Are you ready to live for Jesus. It makes us ask the question, what are we really living for? The Sanhedrin, they kept their lives and their customs because they were not ready to give up that which they, they actually couldn't keep. But Stephen, he gave up his life, the very thing he couldn't keep, to gain him whom he could never lose Jesus says in Mark 8, 35, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Your best life is not about you. 
There is no story of more importance than the one of Jesus. Does he dictate your life? There is nothing of more value to give yourself to than the Holy Spirit. Is there anything of you that you haven't yet given to him? And there is no one more worthy in giving up our lives for and living for the one that we cannot lose, Jesus. Are you not just ready to die for your faith, but are you ready to live for your faith? The great confidence we have that death has been defeated. The Savior is standing in heaven at the right hand of God, just like He said He would, having overcome. And He's looking at us and He's saying, when you give up your life, the very thing you cannot keep, you will gain me whom you could never lose. We were not created for a story that exists around us at the center. We created for a story that makes much about Jesus.